The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for being here. It is Tuesday, November 18th, and you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Radio Network. I'm your host, Vince Rocco. I am here today with my co-host, Jason Meister, and we are coming to you live from Blastoff Studios in Times Square as usual. We have a very interesting show today. Uh, Canadian real estate investor Victor Manash has brought and bought and sold many American properties in the past several years, including houses and condos in the Sun Belt, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Florida, and Arizona. He even bought a baseball stadium in New Jersey. I can't wait to ask him about that. He says, and I quote, we see value in places that Americans don't uh, notice quite so readily. Uh, he is also the author of the book, The Great Canadian Takeover, and we will discuss this and more. But first, a few headlines making news. Uh, a prominent real estate bigwig caused quite a stir last week by admitting that the New York City residential property market is a big bubble waiting to pop. Offer Yardeni, CEO at real estate development firm Stonehenge Properties, said, and quote, I quote, if real estate was a publicly traded company and I could short its stock, I would very happily short 57th Street, referring to the stream of high-end towers popping up along 57th Street's Billionaire's Row, as it's now being called. The market there has stopped, he said. It hasn't just declined 5 or 10%. It has just stopped. Yardeni, whose company has New York real estate assets worth over $2 billion, said the top end of the Manhattan residential market is starting to look extremely frothy. Developers are building large amounts of uber luxury apartments, he said, but no one is really sure if there are enough foreign high net worth individuals out there to buy them. It's going to be really interesting to see if he's right or not. The state's biggest utility may soon lose its leading lobbyist to the real estate industry's most influential organization. John Banks, vice president of governmental relations for Con Edison, is a frontrunner to take over as president of uh, the Real Estate Board of New York, according to Cranes. A Rebney spokesperson declined to comment, while a Con Ed spokesperson did not respond to a call from Globestreet.com. The post has been held for close to 30 years by Stephen Spinola, a well-regarded executive who this summer announced that he would retire next year. Banks has been a top executive working in Con Ed's government affairs office since 2002. Previously, he was chief of staff of the city council. In local politics, pro-charter school education reformers and real estate industry and the real estate industry emerged as big winners last week when New York voters elected a majority of Republicans to the state Senate, leaving teachers' unions and tenants' rights advocates worried about the next uh, two years and what it will bring. New Yorkers for a Balanced Albany, a PAC formed by the uh, reform group Students First New York, spent $4.2 million aiding Republican candidates. Jobs for New York, a PAC tied to the powerful Real Estate Board of New York, spent $1.7 million during the general election helping the GOP. 
um, of the seven competitive races in which New Yorkers for Balanced Albany invested, six yielded Republican victories, and in the five Senate races in which Jobs for New York doled out money, five Republicans were elected. Stephen Spinola, president of Rebney, is relishing the idea of a Republican-controlled Senate, and he says, and I quote, Now that the voters have spoken, Rebney looks forward to working with elected leaders of all political parties to continue on a path of strong growth, the creation of more housing available to all New Yorkers, and increased economic growth to pay for vital government services. So, do you have uh, $500,000 per month to spend on rent? Well, if you do, the 39th floor of the Pierre Hotel is available and is officially the city's priciest rental listing. The floor of the Swanky Hotel offers about 4,786 square feet of living space, and that includes six bedrooms, so get in line for that one. Okay, on to our key interview today. Victor Minash is here, and Jason and I are excited to discuss his investing desires and strategies here in the U.S. Victor, good morning, and thanks for coming to Good Morning, New York. Good morning. Glad to be here. So let, let, let me start in the beginning here a little bit. So at the age of 15, from, from the research that I was doing, you started a business. What was that business? Well, when I was 15 years old, I was very intrigued with uh, theater and performance. And so I started a stage lighting company called Luminex Stage Lighting and ended up working with a number of big-name apps, both in uh, theater and rock and roll. Did a lot of sound reinforcement for various bands and toured around the country. So it was, a, it was a terrific experience, and what I learned from that was it didn't matter what business um, I would be involved in, I wanted to be working with the top people in the industry and learning from them. And so I did that for a number of years, and uh, you know, I knew it wasn't a long-term thing for me, but, uh, but really just wanted to learn from the best. So where does the entre- entrepreneurial spirit come from at, at 15 years old? I find that quite inspirational or, or you know, admirable uh, at such a young age. <laughs> It's very interesting. I had a, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. I never met him. He he died before I was born, but he held 63 patents and uh, was an entrepreneur himself. And my mother talked about him a great deal. In fact, my parents, I have a strong New York connection. My parents lived in Manhattan for 25 years. Uh, you just mentioned the Pierre Hotel a moment ago. And uh, my mother was the second woman in history to graduate in architecture from Cornell University. And she worked, uh, she designed the ballroom extension of the Pierre Hotel on on Fifth Avenue and 61st Street. Um, Very interesting. So, uh, it, it's, uh, I don't know, it's deep in my roots, mm. I guess. <laughs> and as you continue. So moving right. on from there, you um, led into, you got into the semiconductor and telecom industries. Now that's quite a change from entertainment or, or, or theater. What, what inspired that move? Well, I was always interested in technology right from a very young age, and, and I knew from the age of 14 that I wanted to be an electrical engineer. I didn't really know what it meant at that moment, but uh, uh, I knew that I wanted to do chip design, and so that's what I got into. I got my degree in electrical engineering and specialized in microprocessor design, and that's what I did for the bulk of my technical career. Uh, I moved from there into progressively senior roles in both public and private telecom and semiconductor companies, um, and uh, I did that for about 25 years. Mind you, not an easy industry. I was in the, in the uh, communicate. I'm sorry, the, the technology industry myself as a salesperson for about 22 years, starting at IBM way back out of school. All right, so then you make the, the major change in the, the bulk of our conversation today from, you know, to the world of technology to real estate. What what was on your mind in those days when you were thinking about, you know, leaving a, a very lucrative and a very successful career to get into real estate 
and more importantly, the, the business of investing in real estate? I had been traveling at that point in my career uh, every two weeks to Japan. I was working as a VP of engineering for a company that was making chipsets for mobile phones, and we were building a new cellular network in Japan. And uh, it was just a brutal, brutal life, lifestyle at that moment. I was going to Japan every couple of weeks, going to Korea, India, and it just wasn't the right thing for me. It wasn't the right thing for my family. And so I decided to really look around and see what else could I do, because the days of building wealth and technology were pretty much over. I mean, unless you have the depth of pockets of, a, of an Intel or an IBM or a Samsung, it was very difficult to do something really groundbreaking in technology and in a sustainable way. It just really required very deep pockets. So, um, so I started to look at other industries and said, well, the real estate industry is one where, number one, people will lend you money uh, to invest. Number two, it's an industry where much of the world's wealth has, in fact, been created. Uh, it's a big enough market that it's not going to become a monopoly or a duopoly uh, anytime soon. There's room for lots and lots of players, and it's a business that you can scale. So it was a conscious decision. Now, where, where did you where did you um, first play? I guess in the real estate industry, um, you know, what area of the world? Because now you've you know we'll get to it in a second, but you've pretty much been involved in almost 15 countries with investments. Where did you start out with real estate investments? So I started locally. Uh, I live in Ottawa, Canada, the, the nation's capital. And mm-hmm. I noticed a, an opportunity in the marketplace where, you know, Ottawa being a capital city has a lot of temporary workers coming into the city, whether it's parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officers. They're coming into the city for, you know, two, three, six-month assignments. And the typical 12-month um, unfurnished leases of no use to them. They don't want to live in a hotel. And so there was this gap in the marketplace. There was about 2,600 to 3,000 a year coming through the downtown core looking for an, um, a fully furnished uh, product. And so I started building a portfolio within walking distance of Parliament, specifically targeting that market. And it was actually a very good business. It was a good business. It wasn't a great business, but it was a good business, and it taught me an awful lot, and uh, it was quite successful. And then uh, the downturn in real estate took place in the United States and many other parts of the world. Uh, Canada was not affected quite so much and uh, saw the opportunity south of the border and decided to repurpose my capital into what I saw as a much greater opportunity. So basically, you know, when you when you're investing in your own country, you get used to its, you know, its uh, investment strategies and and the laws and the financing, et cetera. In your particular case, in Canada, so you you cross the border into the U.S. and then you certainly go into other countries. How is doing business in multiple different countries, you know, at the same time, uh, work? I mean, it, it sounds to me like it could be a little confusing. Uh, how do you keep up with all of the different regulations uh, in all well, of the different countries? All right. So just 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 to be clear, I've done business in 15 different countries. Most of that was in technology. Uh, in in real estate today, I'm only working in Canada and the U.S. Gotcha. But what doing business globally helped me to um, was to really learn the different styles of doing business. Uh, get very comfortable with managing things remotely. Uh, a lot of people, you know, recommend investing uh, in your own backyard, which which I recommend as well. But if you think, if you've mastered the capability to manage things at a distance, that's a very very useful skill because it also makes you an effective local manager as well. And um, 
And that was really the key skill that has enabled me or Canada have projects in six different cities across the United States. You say in your book in the in the Great Canadian Takeover that to make money in real estate, it's really based off of the purchase of the property, not the sale of it. Can you elaborate on that point? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of people invest in real estate. They'll buy something at market, uh, hoping that the market's going to appreciate, and then <clears throat> you know they make gain some capital gain down the road. I want to buy something at a discount to today's market. I want to create value in today's market. So if I decide that I made a mistake, the very next day I can turn around and sell it and still make a profit. And and so you can only do that if you're buying right, meaning buying at a discount or buying uh, with the opportunity to create immediate value. Uh, You you know, you mentioned uh, the stadium. That's a great example. Uh, You know, we bought bought a stadium in a part of rural New Jersey uh, about – uh, an hour, an hour and ten minutes northwest of Manhattan, and this this stadium used to be the home of the New Jersey Cardinals, uh, and then the, the Sussex Skyhawks. It was owned by husband and wife team. Uh, husband passed away. Uh, they had lost their team franchise. The wife didn't know anything about baseball, and uh, this stadium is a forty two hundred seat stadium. Cost eleven and a half million dollars to build in nineteen ninety three, and uh, it was just lying vacant. So, so the wife wanted to move to Florida and, um, you know, just be close to her kids. So she handed it to a realtor who threw it up on the MLS system. He folded his arms and waited. And that's just not the way to sell a baseball stadium. Victor, let me interrupt you right there. We'll come back in a second, but we have to take a break. You are listening to uh, good morning, New York on the voice America radio station. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at bluerealtygroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. We're talking to Victor Minashi as the author of the book, The Great Canadian Takeover, and we're going to get a little more into that in a bit. But um, we had to take a break there, Victor. You wanted to um, finish your thought on the stadium. You said that it went up on the MLS for $11 million, I think. 
Well, yeah, it was the, the stadium originally cost $11.5 million to build. Uh-huh. And uh, so it was listed at a, at a discounted price of $2 million. Uh, they got an offer at $1.8 million, which eventually their financing fell through. They had another offer at $1.4 million. Their financing fell through. And I offered them 950000 in cash. Now, on the property, there was a cell tower with uh, revenue from Sprint, Verizon, and T-Mobile. So on closing day, I sold the cell tower to a third party for $700,000 and got my cost base on the stadium down to $250,000. So here's an $11.5 million stadium that we sold or that we purchased for $250,000, less than the price of a one-bedroom condo, 28 acres of land, 46,000 square feet of buildings, 4,200-seat stadium with, with 18 luxury boxes for 250 grand. It's like two pen, two cents on the dollar. That's what I mean when I say buy, you make money in the buy. So it doesn't matter what I sell it at. I'm going to make money. All right. So what what are some of the ways that you you identify the value of a property that will you know ensure your investment to be a sound one going forward up front? Again, on the buy side, not necessarily when you're ready to sell it or flip it. Where or how do you identify that value? What I do is I focus on those areas where you've got a really hot, really great neighborhood. And then there's a sharp dividing line with a so-so neighborhood right next door. Mm-hmm. And every city in the country has this situation. So I, I basically find that dividing line, and I just buy just on the wrong side of that line. And I just buy on the line, and I move the line. It's very, very simple. So when you have that situation, if you're simply buying and developing a single property, it's not enough. Nobody notices. Nobody cares because your value is going to be determined by the properties around you. But if you do four, five, 10, 20 properties, now all of a sudden people take notice and say, okay, I get it. The line has moved. And you can start to borrow value from the expensive neighborhood next door. Okay. So Delphia, I I know as I'm saying this, you're visualizing neighborhoods in Brooklyn, uh, in the Bowery, (laughs) uh, in Harlem, in places where that line has been progressively moving. You go back 15 years, you know, you could you could buy um, properties in Harlem very very inexpensively. Today you can't touch them; they're they're so expensive. And and developers have gone in and done exactly what I'm describing, and they've simply developed, starting at 96th Street, moving north, um, developing those properties. It's that's that simple. So do you want, I mean, geography in, 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 in real estate and in, in any country, especially here in the U.S., it, you know, it varies and it differs. So do you watch the trends as the neighborhoods push north, push east, push into Brooklyn, into Queens? Do you, do you watch these, these, you know, burgeoning neighborhoods and, and plan your attack, so to speak, because you think that uh, based on the, the research and the knowledge that you see out there that you're going to make a very good purchase and the value is going to be there and at some point – you know, you're going to make a mark in that that geography. Do you really pay that close attention? And by the way, you know, what management systems do you use, you know, to kind of come up with the right strategies uh, in your we, purchases? Yeah, we absolutely do. We look very carefully. Uh, you know, real estate's an intensely local business. Some people ask me, you know, uh, you know, what do I think about the U.S. market? I, actually, I don't care about the U.S. market. It's too big. Mm-hmm. Real estate is block by block. So it's intensely local and it's driven by those local economic drivers that are bringing people, bringing employment into the area. Uh, you know, if I'm in Houston, I want to be next to the brand new Exxon Mobil headquarters that's bringing 10,000 direct, 30,000 indirect employment into into a you know a, a geographic radius. 
if I'm in, um, you know, Nashville, Tennessee, I want to go to uh, he has that area that is just exploding. In in summary, you know, based on the, on the the Great American Takeover, let, let's talk about some of the main points that you want our listeners this morning to get from the book. I mean, good book. What what are some of the things, the key highlighted points that you'd like to have our listeners know about uh, your book in your world of investing, both in Canada and here in the United States? I would say it's a few things. Number one, a lot of people tend to focus on the deals. And from my perspective, that's the wrong place to look because a good deal badly managed is no deal. Correct. So it always comes back to the management. What's the strength of the team that you have working with you in that local geography? So, you know, when I travel, I don't actually ever really look at properties. I mean, occasionally I do, but my purpose of traveling is to spend time with the local teams uh, growing and strengthening the team. That's the focus because the area ultimately is going to deliver a stream of investment. So it's not that I need one particular deal that's going to set me up in that particular geography. It's going to be a, a series of them. It's got to be scalable. I'll, you know, I've had opportunities to do a single deal an opportunity to do a ski in, ski out deal in Keystone Mountain, Colorado. But I didn't want to put a team in place just for one project. It didn't make any sense. So I passed on that. So it's got to be it's got to be a stream of investment. You've got to have a very strong team, and then you go look at properties because at that point, uh, you know, like I said, deals are everywhere. Right. So uh, that th- that would be number one. Number two um, is really focus on getting the best people you can in every respect. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, attorneys, contractors, um, uh, realtors. That you really want the best people. You know, there's many different grades of contractors out there. There's the full spectrum ranging from two guys in a pickup truck all the way to the guys that can do multi-story condo buildings. And for the kind of projects that we're doing, we always want those medium-sized companies that have developed a very strong track record. They, they can do apartment buildings. A, a very large percentage of what we do is new construction. Uh, I would say probably 75, 80% these days is new construction, mostly multi-unit residential. So we want teams that are very capable of building a good quality product. We want product that's better than the market average. Um, and we want to build features into those products that are going to ensure market demand, even if there's a downturn in the market. I'll give you a great example. Um, Philadelphia, much like New York City, uh, has a shortage of parking. So when we build new product, we always, if possible, want to incorporate parking. Because if there's a downturn in the market, those properties that have parking are always going to be in higher demand. Victor, it's Jason Meister. I um, appreciate the uh, answer. My question to you is, are, are you focused mostly on commercial or are you also dabble in single-family residential um, throughout the U.S.? We've done a little bit of single-family, uh, actually more than a little bit. We've done a fair bit. And I would have to say that these days we're doing less and less for the simple reason that the amount of management effort that it takes to develop a single-family home versus a 10- or 20-unit apartment building is virtually the same from, from my point of view sitting in my office in Ottawa, Canada. And so all other things being equal, I'd rather work on the bigger projects. Uh, they're more predictable. Um, a single-family home, you know, we've, we've done lots of them. We've done waterfront properties in Florida. 
what you control is the price at which you buy it, you control the construction, uh, and you can do all of that right, uh, you know, get the property completely mm-hmm. redeveloped in 25, 30 days, but what you don't control is the sale process. You don't control the appraisal that the lender is going to give the buyer. Um, and so that, that injects a fair bit of uncertainty into the process. And so you never know, is this going to be a four-month project or a one-year project because you don't control the back-end sales cycle. And the commercial deals that you've done in the multifamily sector, um, again, fringe neighborhoods sort of right, right on the border, um, trying to sort of move that line. Is that sort of where you, the multifamily investment that you, you do? Exactly right. And, and we focus on concentration of assets as well. And that's, that does two things. It, uh, it enables us to make a mark on the neighborhood and also makes it easier to manage. You know, for example, in Chicago, uh, we've purchased four buildings on the same block. It's in the south side of Chicago. Not a great neighborhood, but, um, but because we now control such a large percentage of that block, we've, tr- we've changed the character of that block and we have a strong management team in place. And we're, you know, when you go down that street, you say, wow, this is actually quite a nice street. You might go two blocks over and say, eh, I don't want to live here. But that particular street, you look at it and say, wow, this, this is really quite nice. And the buildings are nicely redeveloped on the inside. And uh, so we build a loyal um, a client base of, of tenants. So a lot of people that have lived through the ups and downs cycles, um, we were talking about Ofer Yardini in the beginning of the segment uh, of the show, uh, basically saying that he felt that the market was getting very frothy, especially on 57th Street, for example. The Uber luxury market was getting very frothy. Um, you know, there, when, when there's a reset, if and when there's a reset, and I, I tend to have some agreement with Ofer on this, but when, if and when there's a reset, most uh, investors – and, and users of real estate flock to uh, location um, because the reset occurs and they where they could have gotten land for uh, $500 a foot in, in really good locations of Manhattan um, and now they're paying $500 a foot in Long Island City or Brooklyn or Williamsburg. Uh, not, not quite there yet but headed that way. Um, you know, people start to flock to better locations because real estate is a location, location, location game. So where do you feel, I mean, how do you feel your properties are being on the fringe of those outlying neighborhoods? You know, how will they bear with the, the market if, if there was a reset? Let me answer it this way. Um, the local economy is far more important than the macro economy and far more important than one than happening in, let's say, the global real estate market. So let's say in the, in the example you were giving, um, you know, some expensive parts of Manhattan are really relying very heavily on foreign investment. Is that something that could stop? Yes, absolutely. That could go through a market cycle. It's no question. But if you look at... Um, other areas of the country, for example, along the Gulf Coast uh, of Mexico, there's a tremendous amount of oil and gas development. You know, if you take the tiny little town of Lake Charles, Louisiana, 72,000 people, that one town has got over $70 billion with a B of planned oil and gas projects over the next five years. It's a staggering number for a town of such a small population. 
So anything that gets built in that town will get filled. Absolutely anything. So I go. I don't chase necessarily location in terms of a prime location. What I'm chasing are the economic drivers. You know, I want to be in the hospital district in Fort Worth, Texas. I want to be next to UT Arlington in Arlington, Texas, a campus with 30,000 students and housing for 5,000. Remember, Arlington, Texas has no public transit. So you got over 20,000 people commuting in Dallas traffic every day. Anything that gets built within walking distance of that campus will get filled. It's those kind of mismatches between demand and supply that I look for because that will transcend economic cycles. Victor, unfortunately, we are at the end of our segment, but I wanted to say thank you, and hopefully you'll come back again because we have so many more things that we wanted to discuss with you. I want to remind everybody the book is The Great uh, Canadian Takeover, and Victor Manash is our guest and so gracious uh, to have you here today. Thank you so much. We will be right back after these messages. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and we're joined by my uh, Good Morning New York panel, Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, Perul Brombat from CORE, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman, Niall Lundgren from Dalian Realty, and Jason is here as well, Jason Meister from Avazin Young. So, you know, a couple of hot topics today as we go through every week. Um, I wanted to talk about, you know, the pied-à-terre and the, the neighborhoods and the buildings and the, the specific apartments. The question of who, if anyone, lives in these multi-million dollar condominiums being built across Manhattan grows more intriguing with every new tower crane that hoist, you know, the glass slabs and concrete blocks hundreds of feet into the sky. Think about it. New Yorkers want to know, who are these people who are hiding behind limited liability companies while shelling out a fortune for a condominium? Who sees the apartment as an investment or even just a, a vanity play? And who are too busy sunning in St. Bart's or skiing in Aspen to actually show up and shop at the local market or pay for tickets to a Broadway show. Some people would say, who cares? Other people say they care a lot. A pied-à-terre is an apartment usually located in a large city some distance away from the individual's primary residence. It's most often a condominium. So the controversy, you know, listen, we can talk about several buildings in town, but one of the ones that obviously 
comes to mind, and I just thought about this last night as I was racing home in a taxi from, you know, the West 50s and up Central Park uh, to the Upper West Side where I live. And 15 CPW always comes to mind because it was dark and there were probably a quarter of the apartments in the building had lights on, the rest were dark. And, you know, we've all, all joked about this for years, but this is a perfect example of, you know, the uber luxury type of building, pied a terre for mega billionaires and, and, and multimillionaires. Do they even live in these buildings? Generally, they're just, you know, investment properties. So question you guys is who are these people who hide behind limited liability uh, companies while spending a fortune on a condo? I mean, who are these people? So since um, working in the new development, um, you really get to see uh, some of the numbers right up front um, as people are coming through the door, um, and you sort of get a kind of a larger subset of data points to sort of go off of. And um, whether it is sort of billionaire's row or, if it, or whether it's a, even a little bit below that, um, obviously, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about foreign buyers. Um, certainly a lot of the foreign buyers purchase um, as LLCs, but these are not what I would categorize as the pied-a-terres. Uh, these are more investment properties, so more often than not, they will be occupied by uh, people who are, they, they will rent out these properties or use them intermittently per, for personal use. Um, if you look at the people who are buying with LLCs, um, you really do see certain specific target markets. Um, I see a lot of hedge fund owners, even if they do live in town, uh, purchasing with LLCs uh, for anonymity and just otherwise just sort of the way they want to structure their purpose, purchase purposes. Um, but even in the sort of pied de market alone, what I saw a lot of um, personally was um, foreign buyers purchasing pied shares as LLCs. You know, very good point and, and, and uh, well said, Parul. But my question, you know, to, to all of you also is, you know, I, I get the LLC, you know, the anonymity of it all and, and people don't necessarily want to know, want the world to know who's purchasing whatever, celebrities, politicians, you know, hedge fund people, just very wealthy, old money people, whatever. But are these investments, you know, really a form of vanity or is it really, you know, because they want to be part of, you know, the, the latest craze of 15 CPW or 157 West 57th Street? Or is it really the investment of, you know, X amount of millions because they know somewhere down the road it's going to turn into even more millions? I mean, is it is it a little bit of both or is it one or the other? Well, I think it's all of the above, right? <laughs> yeah, I was just well, going yeah. to say that. I mean, if you look I at 50 all... Central Park West, when people started buying there, the price per square foot, everyone thought that the first buyers were outrageous. And, you know, now that they've, they've sold it once or, you know, it's been resold three times, I mean, the price keeps going up. So people have made fortunes in buildings like that. They have they have made fortunes, retirement money, you know, for lack of a better word. But, you know, the other thing that frustrates a lot of New Yorkers or, or you know, many people is that a huge portion of their income, New Yorkers, goes to paying taxes. But the non-New Yorker who purchased these apartments, for example, who become their neighbors, pay minimal amount in property taxes. And, you know, they say, why? You know, they, they, they don't pay income tax to the city. They buy these uber-wealthy apartments and they pay, you know, very little in, in taxes. So I guess comparatively speaking, you know, your neighbor says, well, you're not even here. You own this, you know, uber-wealthy apartment. At some point, you're going to make double, triple the money, and it just doesn't seem right. 
Well, what do you do, do about but that? The transfer taxes when they sell for foreigners are incredibly high. People don't mm-hmm. look at that part. So that's where they get hit. It's on the back end. Yeah, I, I agree. And then this, this new talk about a pied-à-terre tax, which has been a lot in the news lately, I think would be actually devastating to the market. And I think it would be a massive mistake. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think we need to be so grateful about the fact that we do live in this incredible market where we have so much international attention and leverage. Um, I think it drives the market to being what it is. And even the market turnaround we we experienced after the the downturn in 2008, really, I mean, I accredited so much of that to the fact that we have so many people who don't live here primarily um, <clears throat> don't want a home in New York for all of these various reasons. Jason, what is, what I, in your opinion, what is the impetus behind this this proposed, you know, uh, Pierre Terra? I think it's completely ridiculous. But what, what I mean, what what's driving this? Um, I think to to some extent, um, in all honesty, I think it's a new mayor who's trying to flex his muscles a little bit, um, show that he has the ability to tax more. <laughs> Um, have that progressive sort of attitude towards taxation. Um, but my opinion is, you know, you could have overnight, um, you know, that Uber luxury market would would have a major uh, hemorrhage. And, you know, these overseas buyers that are looking at par- apartments, you know, at these levels that we're talking about, watch how quickly they look at other cities um, and and start to you know I mean they are they are looking at other cities but you'll see them buying in other cities if that type of I don't think the tax will will, will ever get well that's what I was going to ask you I mean because you know my first impression when I read about this stuff a couple of months ago was that well okay so here's a great way of sending you know investors who want to be here in New York City somewhere else I mean there's always going to be the person who needs to wants to whatever buy here. However, you know, on some level, you're going to get people that say, well, I'm not paying that tax, so this doesn't make any kind of sense to me. Off to Chicago, I go. Off to London, I go, you know, wherever. London, right. I don't also think that it's going to go through, and, you know, um, I'm concerned, even on a smaller level, you know, for people, you know, in the in, in the in the one and a half million dollar range, a two million dollar range, in fact, I have lots of Pieter buyers that I sell condos to all the time. They live in Westchester, they live in Long Island. And news of that kind of says, well, you know, why do I want to do this? So guys out there, you know, do you, have you seen this in your local businesses? I mean, I can honestly say all right, the, 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 the law hasn't changed yet, but it's proposed. And I'm already seeing, you know, concerns out there with some of my uh, investor type uh, buyers for condominiums. And, and I'm getting I'm getting concerned. Have you guys seen any of that in your in your personal businesses or at least people expressing their their, their concern? Yes, we I have some been, buyers just in like from you. Dubai. Sorry, guys. Go ahead, Deborah. I, oh, identical business. The $1 million to $3 million local buyers, or even people who might live in Pennsylvania who are looking for a pied-à-terre, they're thinking, you know what? It might be cheaper to get a hotel room occasionally or stay with a good friend who lives in Westchester if I have business for three days. They're really quite the opposite, concerned quite about the opposite this. They're holding of, back. Yeah. Yeah, well, quite the opposite of where or how the Pied-a-Terre marketplace took over, you know, way back when they said, I'm not paying for a hotel room. And now it's it's the reverse of that. You know, maybe it's not so economical to, to own, you know, uh, an apartment. Maybe for the few times a month they come into the city, a hotel makes more sense. By the way, Brad Hol- Hol- Holyman, who's a state senator, is the guy proposing to change uh, and add an additional tax to owners of expensive Pied-a-Terre apartments. And it seems the targeted people for this new tax – is the non-New York resident. So as we've been talking about, you know, there seems to be uh, change 
in the wind, and I hope that it doesn't uh, even happen. But let's talk about the the. We have a, another minute or two left in the segment. Let's just talk about quickly the the Pied-a-Terre buyer who um, may not be uh, affected by this. This is just the, the the average person who you know lives here, spending a million and a half, two million dollars. What is their thought on this, or is there any thought on a tax change? It doesn't really affect them. I haven't heard anything of that matter from any of the buyers that I've been talking to, to local, locally. Because at some point, you know, even though it may not affect a certain person, people get a little antsy over, you know, well, maybe at some point it's going to hurt me, uh, and no one well, really knows. Well, if anything, Vince, I think it would benefit potentially the local market because it might actually free up the market a little bit more. It wouldn't be quote unquote as hot, and so um, so it could actually, as far as the local consumer is concerned, you know, it may free up a little bit more of the market and make it a little more affordable. I don't think that that is good for the overall economics of the city, however. I think it actually would have an impact in the other way in the sense that supply demand, right? So if mm-hmm. a lot of your demand is not coming because they're being taxed to, you know, to the extremes, uh, the, the, the developers are not going to stop building, right? And so the supply will, will get constricted, and when supply gets constricted, demand goes up. So you're gonna. Ha- it might be a little bit of a wash, but you know you're. You have to remember that there's a very significant demand that's going to get constricted, and so therefore supply has to follow. Otherwise, you have an oversaturated market with supply. Well, yeah, yeah, and either way, it constricts the market for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, just quick predictions on where we're going with this this particular marketplace uh, between now and 2015, which is, you know, a little over a month away, uh, when inventory typically frees up and, and, and there is more to the marketplace. Where, you know, where are we? I guess a quick prediction before we go to break on where, how are we going to start 2015 inventory-wise? Anybody want to chime in on that one? Well, I think there will be more inventory, but I'm thinking back to a few weeks ago on the show when we were talking about new development and conversions that are coming on the market. Mm -hmm. And I think there will be a lot more of those coming on the market as well. And with regard to conversions, they're usually not the real uber luxury conversions. So I think local people will be looking more at those. Um, Outsiders will be looking at them not necessarily as investments, but... um, more of a pied-a-terre on a lower level. And right, again, guys, this gonna, law could really mess that up. We're going to take a break, and when we come back on the other side of this break, we're going to talk about how to write a buyer's love letter. Yes, a buyer's love letter. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. 
You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back to panel. Um, good morning, New York panel. Deborah Hoffman, Peril Brombat, Rachel Altshuler, Niall Lundgren, and my co-host today, uh, Jason Meister. So, you know, I wanted to talk about, you know, how to write a buyer's love letter. And, and you know, these things are very important. We, we tease and we call it a love letter, but I think we all understand what uh, what we're talking about here. As bidding wars may be on the wane, but the marketplace is still fairly competitive. Blame that seemingly omnipresent low inventory. So there's low inventory. There are too many people out there who want to buy the same apartment. Well, money still talks. Letters, the old-fashioned kind, have the power to sway sellers too. Specifically, buyers are writing love letters describing why they're smitten with a place and why they're the perfect fit for it. Their goal is to persuade a seller to choose their offer over others. Indeed, sellers have been known to accept lower offers because they identify with the one bidder over another and uh, will routinely go with the buyer who seems better equipped to get a deal done, even if it means accepting less money. If you're competing against another offer for the same dollar figure, a detail in the letter could persuade the seller to pick you. Now, I can tell you I had personal experience with this earlier in the year where I had a buyer write a letter, and uh, it was a bidding situation, and write a letter. And at the end of the day, we were not the highest uh, bidder. We weren't too far off. But I have to tell you, in all honesty and sincerity, and I think I mentioned this on on the program once before, maybe twice before, we got the apartment. And we got the apartment because the letter was so spectacular uh, that the the seller said, "I I, I want this couple to live in this apartment with this baby. And that's the end of the story because this is right for them. Now, is that going to happen all the time? No, it isn't. But it does happen sometimes. We wouldn't be talking about it today if it didn't. Love letters aren't necessarily always going to get you the property, but finances will sometimes trump a love letter, you know, all cash, whatever it is. But what, you know, when you're out there in bidding situations, and and fortunately for us, I think it's tamed down a little bit and it's not so competitive with bidding wars and over asking prices in some cases. But what are you guys seeing out there by way of um, strategies, for lack of a better term, to get your buyers more qualified, even if it comes down to a letter? Are any of you proposing these types of letters to your buyers? I think what's interesting about this, Uh, like, love letter is I actually, I'm I'm sure we're all like this because we're all great brokers, but every offer we submit is a love letter. And it's not just for a bidding war, and it's not just for a strong market. A good broker is going to reflect an offer in a way that presents, you know, their client in the best way possible. So all the things that we had read about is, you know, showing confidence and showing why they love it and why they're attached to this and why they're, you know, the most qualified. But at the end of the day, every every broker should be presenting it in, in some form of a love letter. And if you're on the exclusive side where you have a listing, it's amazing to me how many brokers don't do that, where they just say, here's my offer. There's no pre-approval. There's no revenue. There's no, like, this is why my client loves the property. Um, so I think the love letter is actually something we all use on a day to day. I would hope I that that's true. Rachel, uh, go ahead, Deborah. Oh, as mostly a seller's broker, even in the real 
downturn days, I did get a lot of these love letters, which my sellers actually kind of laughed at because they really wanted the highest price. So I think they're only taken seriously, as what Rachel just said, when it's part of the whole offer, when you're giving a whole profile of the person and everything else is there. If you're just giving a price and a love letter, the broker and the seller are really not going to care. It's got to be part of the entire offer, just like Rachel said. Yeah, and I yeah. think what, we should talk about a little bit about what that what goes into the offer to make it, you know, I guess crafted with as much love, right? right. So whenever I put together an offer, um, the first thing you want to do is introduce, you know, yourself and the buyers um, to the other broker. I generally write that out in a letter, and then I give an offer. With that offer, I provide terms. Is it all cash? Is it contingent upon financing? And then generally, I write a quick bio of background of my buyer so that it humanizes um, the buyer to the, to the seller. So it's not just a random number, you know, 500000 It's 500000 with these terms, and this is the buyer, and this is why he wants to do it. It doesn't have to be gushy, but it just wants to demonstrate who they are and why they're looking to make an offer on this. It should also be fully equipped with a pre-qualification letter if there um, is financing involved. If there's no financing, proof of funds would be great, or a letter from the accountant. And then also the revenue financial statement, which is assets and liabilities. And then with all of those put together, show that you know, your buyer is going to be qualified and apt and has the financial wherewithal to actually close on that, which will give the seller confidence and give you a higher likelihood of winning the deal. So what I'm, what I'm, what I'm basically hearing from everyone, and, and, and rightly so, is it's more than just writing a nice letter or a love letter, whatever you want to call it. It's more presenting the entire package in a clean and, and, and easy uh, way, complete way rather, with everything included, including you know, the financial backup and the, and the revenue statement and proof of funds. But if you're going to write a letter, you know, I would suggest that you, um, you show off who you are but in an understated way, state what your job and education is, describe why the place is right from an emotional perspective for you and whoever is going to be living there with you, personalize the space and how you fit into it sincerely and communicate your seriousness for the property. Sound knowledge about the marketplace never hurts either because, some, you know, as we just discussed, you know, some people aren't going to be so, you know, caring about a letter because some people are going to say, listen, it's $10,000 more or it's $20,000 more. I want that. But in my particular case, and I got to tell you, I was more shocked than anybody this letter that was written was absolutely unbelievable, and it got them the apartment. I'm going to I'm going to go on record and say it was twenty thousand dollars less than the highest bid, and we got the apartment. So, wow. you know, there are times. Yeah, I know it's a big wow. There are times where it makes uh, it makes a difference, or it certainly can hurt. Listen, I, I remember, think it makes you know, the most difference when you're dealing with a co-op, and I think a lot of buyers don't understand when when you're picking mm-hmm. a buyer's broker. You, it's not just about opening the door and just presenting an offer. It's the relationship that broker has in the community, how they package the offers. You know, does this broker actually call the listing broker to find out how many offers are on the table and the seller's motivation? I mean, there's so much that goes into it. It's not just about writing the offer on paper. It's it's really interesting listening to you guys because the love letters on the commercial end don't happen, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they, don't. they just don't work. They never did. Um, but it's interesting to hear the human you know humanization of the uh, residential world, and it shows you that residential real estate is a lot more emotional, totally. to some degree than commercial. I mm-hmm. mean, I show buildings 
to prospective purchasers or that I'm representing the seller seller on the transaction and they don't even look at the building in some instances they just look at a spreadsheet they look at a return they don't mm-hmm. I say when do you want to go inspect the property they say I don't want to waste my time um, exactly. the bricks don't really matter necessarily exactly. in some mm-hmm. instances um, so it's just interesting to listen to the love letters because there's no love letters on my side. Well, listen, you know, it, as you said, it, it's it's on the residential side. It, it is completely, and we've talked about this on the radio program now for nine or ten months. But it's completely emotional and highly emotional and dramatic sometimes. It's, and at the end of the day, I remember when I started in this business thirteen years ago, you know, and started doing board packages. There was no such thing, or I wasn't aware of it of a, a introduction letter. And right. I was like one of the first people in my office that came up with this idea. Maybe I'll have my buyer write a letter and c- include that letter and see where it goes. And this is even before, you know, bidding wars, you know, happen. It's just in a normal stable market. I want to introduce you to the seller. So write this letter. And of course, if they can't do it properly, I would, you know, chime in and help them script it. But, you know, it's grown or morphed over time into an almost necessary piece of paper in that in that submission mm-hmm. package because you know people some people will take it seriously right i guess yeah, that's a highly emotional process vince and when you're dealing with you know high emotion the more that you can especially on the residential side versus commercial the more that you can humanize the buyer the better the better likelihood that 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 the sellers are going to capture the emotion of that and say all right it's not just a number it's not just a million dollars not just 1.2. It's 1.2, and you know this is a family that's you know building up and have kids who are already going to school in the neighborhood, and they they're like, no, oh, I really want this person to have it, and that's what you're really going for when you're writing these letters is and, and putting together these tight packages is wanting the seller to to realize the the, the human side of it, not just like the number side, and a lot of times. You know, if you do it delicately in, in the way that Vince is, and we've all been talking about, you know, you have a higher likelihood of winning the deal. And not and only I, and that, by doing this love letter, doing an introduction letter shows the broker that your board package is going to be flawless. You're mm. dealing with a broker that knows their client. All these things mean that you're investing two to three months in some cases in doing the deal, which it typically takes 60 to 90 days for most deals. And you don't want to run the risk of going with a, a client, let's say, who filled out a Redney incorrectly and doesn't have the cash, but quoted the cash on the Redney. So there's a lot of things that go into writing a perfect offer. It means so much more than just how much they love the apartment. It means how are we going to do this deal from start to finish? And that's Absolutely. what I want to check. And very, and very I... quickly, I recently represented an apartment. We got three offers. I was friendly with all three brokers, or I knew them, or they had been in the business forever. And only one of them, and these were experienced brokers, only one of them had that perfect offer with the letter of introduction and everything, and it was Niall. And he did everything that he just spoke about, and that's what actually pushed us to go with him. I keep saying saying that we're superstar brokers on this panel and here's a perfect point. But I wanted to just close this segment by saying, you know, Niall mentioned this and several of you did the same. It is a human business. And, you know, quite frankly, we've talked about this on this program for months and months. Real estate transactions and the way we do real estate deals in New York City is completely different and foreign to any other marketplace 
in the world, including our neighbors in New Jersey or in Connecticut. We have a completely different process here. So highly emotional, but it is very human, uh, humanizing. So you need to find certain ways and certain tricks to, to get you to that next deal. Anyway, as usual, we are out of time for this week. That is Good Morning uh, New York for today. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern and 6 a.m. Pacific time live. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back.